Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, Matthew 23. Today is heavy because Jesus is going to address the Pharisees in a really serious way. He's going to declare a series of woes upon them. Now, a woe is, uh, in Hebrew, it's essentially a uh, kind of like a funeral term. It carries with it um, a certain level of emotion. Um, It evokes pain and displeasure and disaster and sorrow and sadness. It was a word that summed up the feeling and the emotion that would happen at a funeral because of a death, but that emotion was also used regularly by the prophets in the Old Testament when they would communicate God's feelings and emotions over the actions and sin of Israel. God had cut a covenant with these people and they were being rebellious and the prophets would stand up and they would declare woe unto Israel, communicating the sorrow that God had because his people were being unfaithful while he was still being faithful to them. So when Jesus comes up and communicates to the Pharisees a series of woes, he's doing that as a way to almost like offer um, a counter to the Beatitudes. Right? Earlier in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, 7, you've got the Sermon on the Mount. You've got Jesus standing up there saying, blessed, blessed, blessed are the people who are like this. And now in Matthew 23, you've got Jesus standing up there on the Pharisee and says, woe to you who are like this. And he's evoking all of this emotion for these Jewish people who have this understanding of the Old Testament. And it's sometimes lost on us because we're not familiar with the text. We don't spend a lot of time in it, but it's not a part of our culture in the way that it was at this time. And so for Jesus to do this, it was a very heavy thing, and I don't want you to miss that. But before we get into it, I think it's really important for us to understand the mind and the heart of the Pharisee. Because in all of our stories, he's the villain. He's the one who's doing things wrong, and rightly so. But it wasn't always like that. How did the Pharisee get their start? Where did they come from? Because there is no Pharisee, Sadducee, or scribe in the Old Testament. There are priests, there are kings, and there are prophets. But there are no Pharisees. So where did they come from? Well, at the end of the, the last book in the Old Testament, when it finishes writing, there's a period of silence where God doesn't speak or act in the nation for about 400 years. So the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament where Jesus shows up, it's a 400, 400 year period of silence. Now, a lot of things in the world were happening during that 400 year period. One of the primary things that was happening was this guy named Alexander the Great. You familiar with him? He started this culture of Hellenization, secularizing the world, spreading Greek culture over the entire world. And what happened during this period when he was doing this was the Jewish faith started getting wrapped up 
and mixed with the Greek culture to the point where you couldn't tell this custom that we're doing, is this Greek or is this a command from the law? And some of it was, well, it's a command from the law, but we're gonna observe it like we're Greek. And a group of people rose up and said, we're not gonna have this anymore. We're gonna stay devout and true to the law of Moses, and we're gonna take it seriously, and we're gonna live separated. We're not gonna secularize, we're not gonna be the kind of people who allow culture to influence our faith, and we're gonna hold true to the faith. And these people became the stewards of the law. During this period of silence, these were the guys who were standing up against the Greek culture saying, no, 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 this is what our law tells us and we're gonna stay faithful to it. Well, a generation would die and another generation would rise up and they would become more and more devout and then that generation would die and another generation would rise up and they would become even more devout. And over a 400 year period, a generation would pass, another generation would rise up of Jewish men who felt unbelievably devoted to the Word of God. So much so that they felt so true that they had to protect the Word of God that they started creating commentaries on how to observe the law. And they became so devout to these commentaries and the ways that they would tell the people how you're supposed to view and read and understand and obey the law that they eventually just stopped talking so much about the law and started talking more about their commentary of the law and the people in turn stopped reading the law and only listened to what these leaders had to say about the law. You see where we're going with this? The people stopped reading God's word for themselves because they felt like it was enough for somebody to stand on a stage and tell them what it said. Well, these men became the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. These guys who started out so devoted to the things of God, but along the way their heart wandered because they got so caught up in the power. Man, people are listening to me. I am needed, I am wanted. I can create a career out of this. I can build status in this. People look at me differently because of how I treat it, because I'm so devoted, I am better than. And what this did in the culture is it elevated these men to a leadership status that God did not give them, they gave, they gave themselves. But as in all things, when it comes to leadership, is stuff flows from the top down. And that's good stuff, and that's bad stuff. Whoever's in charge in a leadership structure, their bad habits eventually start trickling down into the people. And it's the same with good habits, but when it comes to leadership, however the leader is leading affects the people. And so eventually the people just started looking to and trusting and looking up to the leaders and not taking their individual relationship with the covenant seriously. And it created an entire nation of people who no longer needed God because they had man. Now I say all that because as we're gonna get into Matthew 23 today, it's important for you to understand the motivation for Jesus communicating 
the woe to these people. Because as this is happening for 400 years, the Father is in heaven observing and watching this. And he sends forth the Son to grow up in this. The covenant that God cut with his people that was perverted, that was taken out of context, Jesus was brought up in that. And so Jesus, who's always existed and was there at the burning bush with Moses and was there at the mountain when the Ten Commandments was cut, Jesus, who's always existed, who was there at the beginning, was humbled himself to grow up in this perverse culture of these men taking advantage of the thing that ultimately he was responsible for cutting with the nation of Israel. And so now, after 33 years of life, three years of ministry, Jesus is now in Jerusalem in the last week of his life, and everything kind of comes to the surface, and he pronounces what's essentially judgment on these men, because he accurately sees what happened, because he was there in the beginning, and he saw and grew up into what it's become. And all of that tension, all of that stress is what we're going to bring into the understanding of Matthew 23. If you don't understand that background, it just seems like a bunch of religious people are just getting whooped by Jesus. And it is that, but there's a tension and a sadness behind it because there is a thousand, 2,000 year period this slow burn of these people drifting away and God saying, no, 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 come back to me. And they say, no, 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 but we've got these guys. No, 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 but I want you. I want you to hear from me. No, 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 but we, these guys are telling us what you're saying. And I can see these guys. And they, I, can, I can look up to these guys. I can't see you. God's like, no, no, no. You're... And all of this tension is what we come to Matthew 23. The summary of all of that is that these guys were living like hypocrites. And Jesus says hypocrites often, as we're going to read through 23, but it's important to understand that what Jesus, what Matthew was writing in when he writes this in the original language, that word hypocrite was the same word that was used to describe actors in a play. So what he's saying is you guys are doing nothing more than playing a part. You're playing a role. There's no true conviction. It's not who you really are because you have put yourself on a stage and you're only acting. So let's get into it. Matthew 23, let's read verses one through 12. So Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now, what is that? Most likely, it was probably a literal seat in the synagogue that a rabbi would sit down on to exercise his authority. All right, back then, the speaker wouldn't stand. They would sit, and everyone else would sit at their feet, and he would communicate, and most likely, he was sitting in a seat called Moses' seat, and what he was doing by sitting there is essentially saying, I am speaking with the authority of Moses, all right? So the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They speak with his authority. So do and observe whatever they tell you. 
but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. So because of the authority they speak with, tied to the scriptures, you should listen to it because it's God's words. But if you're looking for ways to apply that and walk it out, do not look at these guys because they are nothing more than actors in a play wearing a mask. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all of their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. What is that? Well, according to Deuteronomy 6, 8, 11, 18, a phylactery was this thing, it was like a, think of it like a leather belt or a leather strap. And it was wrapped all around the arms and all up the back and around the head. And it ended with a little tiny box and that box was filled with scripture. So the idea being there's scripture between your, your eyes. So when you're looking at stuff, you're looking at the world through the lens of scripture. And it's tied on your hands too because everything your hands touch in this world, you're, you're interacting with this world through the lens of scripture. And what these guys were doing was that they were starting to widen the leather band so it was really, really wide so you could see it from a mile away. These were holy men. You better watch out. But the other command, and this is from Numbers 15, 38 through 39, Deuteronomy 22, 12, there was this concept of um, uh, fringes that were hung or sewn to the corners of garments. Now today, you can go to Israel, you can buy uh, what's called a tallit. It's basically, it looks like a long blanket, and at the corners of that it's, uh, are sewed these um, tassels. And the tassels have symbolic thing. There's a blue thread through the middle. They symbolize all the, the laws of the covenant of Moses, but they were, uh, at this time, they weren't worn as an actual, uh, like, blanket or worn as a robe over you. They were actually sewn into the corners of the garment. So like on this shirt today, I'd have like some tassels sewn here to the corner and they would just kind of dangle as I'm walking around. And the purpose of this is that it doesn't matter where you're going, if you're going to Burger King or Chick-fil-A or you're going in to go shopping at the mall, as you're walking along, these tassels are rubbing up against your hands and you can't help but walk and be reminded that you are a person of the covenant. Everywhere you go, there's some kind of touch or feeling reminding you. Everything you see, there's, a, there's some kind of symbol of the covenant reminding you. When you sit down to eat, you don't just get to say, I'm gonna have whatever I want today. No, no, there's a strict diet tied to the law of things you can have and you can't have, and that is designed to remind you that every time you sit down to eat, you are a person of the covenant. You don't get to make your own choices because you are under the Father and he has made the choices for you. So there are things that are okay and there are things that are not okay. All of this was designed to remind them you are different. You are my people. And I made you this way. But what they would do is they would long, lengthen their fringes and they would widen their phylacteries so that when they walked down the marketplaces, verse 6, they loved the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. They did this because they loved when they were out in public, being spotlighted because of titles and clothing and diets. They loved reminding people about the food they ate and the food they didn't eat and the clothings that they wore. 
that they were special. They loved titles. Verse eight, but you are not to be called rabbi. And it's hard to kind of picture this, but the way Jesus is speaking, it's almost like he's speaking to the crowd and he's talking about the Pharisees while they're standing there. You know, they like to have these long fringes, and I can imagine the Pharisees. They like the titles rabbi. But then he looks and turns and stares at them. And I can imagine pointing and saying, but you are not to be called rabbi. And he looks back at them. He says, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors like these guys, for you have one instructor, the Christ. If you want to understand leadership, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself, he's going to be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now what is Jesus' point in the first 12 verses? that Israel has a massive leadership problem. That most of their wayward hearts can be tracked back to poor examples in leadership. And that's most issues today too. Most issues we struggle with are leadership issues. These leaders, much like today, love titles. They love showy religion. They love putting heavy burdens on people that they're not going to carry themselves. They love creating red tape to trip people up. They lack compassion, but they have an abundance of greed. They demand titles like rabbi and father and instructor and apostle. problem is that in all this chasing of titles and lacking compassion and treating each other poorly, it's wrong in the eyes of God for the leader, but it's also wrong because it's communicating things being trickled down into the people. And that's the issue. And that's why Jesus is about to let them have it. Because there's one thing if you're wayward, and you're making poor decisions, and you have to be accountable to God for those. But it is quite another to lead your entire family astray, to lead an entire church astray, to lead an entire nation astray. The issue here is not just that the leaders are doing the wrong thing. The issue is that the leaders are doing the wrong thing, and they're training the people to do the wrong thing. And this is not good. Because in the kingdom of God, titles are a reflection of the authority structure that God established. God, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but like the idea of authority, God established that. He created that. We didn't come up with that. That's a him thing, not an us thing. Now we take it and we pervert it, but the idea, the concept of authority structure comes from him. And it sits with this idea, and the centurion got this, authority only works when you sit under authority. The only reason why I can be standing here today teaching you the Bible is because I am under the authority of God. 
I'm under the authority of our trustees, our fellow pastors at this church. I sit under the authority that the Bible has established and I teach the Bible. I'm not up here sharing with you my thoughts on God. I'm sharing with you Jesus's thoughts on God. And that's what gives me authority to stand here and teach because I'm not teaching my thoughts or my perspective. I'm speaking with the authority of sitting under the authority. This is what he said, not what I said. But what happens is that when authority structures get set up in a way where they feel like they're an end unto themselves and they don't submit to the word of God, then all kinds of bizarre stuff starts being created and these um, almost like counterfeits of God's stuff that looks so much like God, but has nothing to do with him becomes the thing that we start submitting our lives to. This is not Jesus, but man, it sure looks so much like him. I don't know enough of this to know the difference, so somebody I look up to told me that this is truth, and so I'm gonna hold on to it like it's truth. And what Jesus is not saying here is that he's outlawing the, the word father or rabbi or teacher. What he's saying is that those who hold authority should be proactive in not abusing the term teacher or father instructor to lift themselves up. They should not manipulate the structure that God's created and set up and, and formed to build their own personal kingdoms. This is set up in a way to bless God and establish his kingdom, and we submit to it. We don't use that as tools to build our own thing. So he's telling these people, his disciples, and he's telling the, the rabbi sitting there, you're wasting your time chasing titles. Instead, how about you chase opportunities to serve people? Instead of trying to lift yourself up, how about you get lower? How about you use your authority that God gave you to set people free so they can grow and not put them back into little um, uh, boxes of bondage from which they came out of so that they can serve your ends and your purposes? Let's go to Matthew 23, verse 13. This is the series of woes. Now, if you're reading from the ESV, verse 14 is not in some manuscripts, and so they remove it from the line of text and they put it down in the footnote. Some of your Bibles may have it in there. Um, it's in there. I'm reading from the ESV, but I'm gonna include this one because it's, it's verse 14. I don't wanna miss it. So that actually makes it eight woes and not seven woes, but I don't know what to tell you. Woe unto us who try to do math. So verse 13, it says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. How do you do that? Because you never entered it yourselves, nor allowed those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you devour widows, houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you're going to receive the greater condemnation. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make every single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Ooh. 
Mm. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And, and you say if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing, but if somebody swears by the gift that is on the altar, oh, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought have done without neglecting the others, but blind guides, you're straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you, you, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all kind of uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we had, there's no way we would have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets because you murdered John the Baptist. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Let's pause there because that was a lot to grasp. But I wanted you to understand the magnitude of their sin. They weren't just breaking God's law. They're teaching other people to do it. Now what I want to do is I want to I look at the, the series of woes that he declared on them. And I want to bring a little bit of light to them. I want to put an understanding of what these guys were doing and why Jesus spoke this woe over them. So in verse 13, woe to you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. What is he talking about? He's talking about the refusal to enter God's kingdom and therefore shutting the door to others. And essentially what this is, I think, is it's a disconnect between how they lived and what they said. It's this inability for the leader in their private time to behold the glory of God and to be transformed by what they see and then stand before the people and communicate that in a way that's transformative. What they're doing is they're refusing to actually enter in and behold and actually get to know the Lord so when they do stand before the people and they talk, it translates into just weak sermons. There's no power because nothing has been beheld. There's no true joy of seeing the Father because they don't know what he looks like. 
They stare at words, but they don't let the words drive them to the man who spoke them. And so they stand up and offer commentary on what they read, but there's no, there's no desire or passion behind what they're saying because it's not birthed out of a relationship or a covenant. It's based out of an obligation. They're not cultivating a vibrant walk with God and it's showing in the people. Now verse 14. Woe to you who devour widows' houses for a pretense and make long prayers. What is he talking about with widows? He's talking about the fact that these guys were guilty of exploiting the weak and they were justifying it with their fake holiness. I'm taking advantage of those who are in difficult times and I'm compensating for it with my long prayers so that you know that what I'm doing isn't bad, I'm a holy man and what I'm doing is good for them. No, it's a lack of compassion. It's a complete emptiness It's a taking advantage of not just the widows, but the poor, the children. It's the taking up of large offerings from vulnerable people and spending it on excess. It's it's the working of a crowd so that you can get a larger offering to spend on your own kingdom building projects. It's the hiding of sin behind religion and fake devotion and saying to the people, this is what holiness looks like, but being completely empty on the inside. Verse 15, woe to the scribes that travel across the sea and the land and make a single proselyte. This is a a being guilty of turning missions into a business model. Because what's happening here is they're spending a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of resources exporting a false understanding of God's kingdom for personal gain. Because what's in it for them is more followers. And what they're in it for is not the fame of God's name and the transforming work of his glory throughout the entire earth and the redemption of mankind back up to God. They're in it for the followers. They're in it for the likes because they've convinced themselves that we can do more for God if we have more influence. And what they've told themselves and what they've told the people is that what is most important in God's kingdom is influence, not sacrifice, not obedience, not faithfulness. Verse 16, woe to anybody who swears by the temple. Then he goes through for the next few verses just dissecting how they've set up this entire structure for how oaths work. Now he told his disciples back in Matthew 5, don't take oaths, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So why are these guys doing this? Why are they having to set up the structure of oaths? Because they got to a place where their word meant nothing. They couldn't say yes and people believe them because they were so full of lies. Everything they said, you couldn't trust when it came out of their mouth. And so they have to create a legal structure to resolve conflict within the body. They have to make oaths and covenants because their word is not good enough. I can't just say, I'll be there. 
I can't just say, you can count on me. You can't just say, uh, I commit to this and I'll be there and you can count on me because something better might come up and I might need to go to that thing. So they create these structures and these, these, these covenants. Well, oh, well, just commit for six months, commit for 12 months, pledge on this, put your oath on this. According to Jesus, none of that's needed if you operate with a level of character where your yes means yes and your no means no. Verse 23, woe to you, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. These guys had a habit of obeying the measurable commands that everybody could see and observe and weigh, but they ignored the matters of the heart. They tithe, which was always visible to other people, because there's always a record of it, you can see it, but they neglected the needs of other people. They followed the rules. Everybody could see, but their heart was far from God. They, they had this measure of generosity, but the generosity was always designed to gain followers. I'm gonna do this right thing God told me to, but I'm not gonna do it for the right reason. I'm not gonna do it because my God wants me to, and he was tremendously generous to me, and so I have no other response but to be generous to the rest of mankind because that's what my father did for me, and that's the kind of person I wanna be. No, 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 I'm gonna be generous because this person has something that I want. And that want could be as they own a boat that I wanna use or a house by the beach, and I want to stay in it for free. But it could also be as quiet and as subtle as I want to be generous because I want this person to like me. What I need from them is their approval because God approving of me, it's not enough. It's not enough that my father loves me. I need this person to like me. And so my generosity is manipulation. It's not true generosity. It's my way of getting what I want. Verse 25, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. These guys were full of faithful traditions, but inside was just selfish, excuse me, selfish indulgence. They were surrounded by God's word, but it never really truly penetrated their heart. They, they taught it, they knew it, they studied it, but it never changed them. They never brought the faith that they exercised publicly home with them. They were quick to pray with people in public, but never prayed with their children. They were quick to demonstrate publicly all of the outward traditions and rituals, being tied to a long-standing season of tradition, I'm a part of this big covenant of whatever. But when I leave, I leave all that there. It doesn't come home with me. Tradition was nothing more than just a social status. Verse 27, for you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. These guys loved dressing up their faith, but they had no real power. Their faith was symbolized in beautiful buildings, beautiful exteriors, well-cut lawns, but when you walk through the doors, there's nothing to offer. 
It's dead inside. There's no change happening. The programs were there. They had these well-crafted teachings, but they were empty of resurrection power. There's nothing alive on the inside. It's just full of dead men's bones. Verse 29, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part in them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. They built monuments to cover their past and to lie about their role in it. They claimed to have, would have, they would have sided with the prophets of old, but they're ignoring the modern prophets. They're rewriting history, saying I wouldn't have been on that side when absolutely they would have been on that side. Because they're not on that side now in a different way. They could see the sin and the issues of the past, but they ignored it in their current generation. They were blind to repeating the same mistakes of the past. These were devoted men, but they were not devoted to God. Go to verse 33. It says, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? What do you think that means? (laughs) Let's go to the Greek. Now, Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from your town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. That's the prophet Zechariah, like his, in his book, uh, the Old Testament uh, prophet whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Do you remember, remember that? When you, remember when your ancestors did that? Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So what is gonna come of these men? What will come of leaders like this, of generations like this? What will come of them? Judgment. That's it. Judgment is coming. They're going to receive judgment because they can't escape hell for what they've done with the lives God has given them. The blood of the innocent will testify against them and their own deeds will testify against them. Now hell and judgment is a very scary thing. It's not the kind of thing that we sit around and think about often. It's not something that we talk about a lot in church, but the doctrine of hell is a real thing. It's a real place and if you don't, submit your heart to Jesus and allow him to take the punishment that is coming our way on your behalf, then the judgment will be pronounced on you. Imagine standing before a judge when you've racked up a huge list of infractions and choosing to say, I'm gonna go stand before the judge and plead my case rather than having the master of the universe do it for you. That's the audacity. Now, judgment is tough and hell is difficult, but the truth is that without the understanding that there is a hell and there will be judgment for people like this, we can't truly believe that God is a God of justice. There is no justice unless there is a coming judgment. 
There is no justice for the atrocious things that were done to you as a child unless there is a God who one day will pronounce judgment on the one who did that to you. And so while it is not a pleasant thing to think about, if evil is never punished and righteousness is not rewarded, then we don't actually serve a just God. But the beauty is that all of us have fallen short and are headed toward that judgment. But if you put your faith, in Je- your faith in Jesus, that he has already taken that punishment for you, then the forgiveness of sin is coming your way and there is forgiveness. And this is what he means in the final verses. That there is a promise to those who take what he's offering and there is a judgment to those who reject it. Verse 37 Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have gathered your children together. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings, you are not willing. See, your house, it's left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, God's desire has always been to gather his people under his wings. And our desire has always been to run and try and find our own way. But unfortunately, the end to us trying to find our own way is always, according to the word of God, leaves us in a desolate place. The only redemption, the only hope we have is when we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is Jesus, the one who ransomed me, who bought me back from a life of sin, who took me from darkness and brought me into marvelous light. Praise Jesus. So to avoid desolation in this life and the life to come, we have to turn to Jesus. Now, this is how I wanna close. As we read through these verses in this chapter, I can't help but connect the dots. And hopefully through the power of the Spirit you did the same thing. We don't have Pharisees anymore, but in a way we kind of still do. And the reason why I say that is because the heart of the Pharisee can still live in churches, in leaders, and in church folk. Now listen, none of those Pharisees would have consider themselves a Pharisee in the sense that we consider a Pharisee now. Yes, they carry that title, but that title means something different to us now than it did to them. At the point of them living, none of them would have said, oh, I'm not opposite of God. I'm not against him. I'm on team God. Nobody would have thought, nobody did think that Jesus was right and that they were against God. And if these guys were so convinced standing there in front of Jesus that they were right while Jesus is telling them that they were wrong, how much more deception could we possibly be living in in this day and age today? In our church, in our own hearts, across the globe. 
Now, am I saying that our church is a church of Pharisees? No, I, I don't think our church is a church of Pharisees. I think there are a lot of great churches in this city that are not churches of Pharisees. They're faithfully teaching the Word of God. They're discipling people. They're good churches. I pray for those churches regularly. But to say that all of us are good just because we say the name Jesus just because we do a couple religious things that look like the early church did, exempts us from the deep work of examining through the power of the Spirit that we might be pharisaical is silly. So how do we respond today? How do we get to a place where we as a people are not shutting the door of God's kingdom to other people by the way that we live? How do we as a people get to a place where we're not exploiting the broken and hiding behind fake holiness? We're not turning missions into a business rather than actually sending people to build God's kingdom. How do we make sure that we don't get to a place or we're not actually at a place where we're losing credibility because of the lies that we tell, because we're constantly offering commentary on everything but the gospel? How do we get to a place where we as a people can be, can be so faithful traditions and buildings and budgets that we lose the heart of people? How do we avoid building monuments to previous moves of God and measuring everything that God does now against history rather than God's word? How do we do that? Through prayer through coming before the Lord and asking the Spirit to mine the depths of what's in here and bring to the surface even the stuff that you don't even know that's there or it's there and you don't like it. Because the heart of the Pharisee is a dangerous thing because it, it looks so devoted, it looks so religious, it looks so right that it can fool everybody, even you, but it doesn't fool God. So what do we do today? What do we do this week? We look at Matthew 23 and we don't walk away saying, man, it serves them right. They had it coming. We read Matthew 23 and we pray, Lord, is this me? Is this us? And if the answer is yes, then our response is, Lord, change me now. And if the answer is no, not a Pharisee, then our prayer is, Lord, keep me far far from that path. Because these guys started out committed to your word and it didn't end well. And Revelation chapter two and three is full of churches that Paul planted, that were faithful, that got books of the Bible written to them, that now say you've lost your first love. And if you don't return, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. I'm gonna remove the lampstand from your church presence of God. Can you go to the church of Ephesus today? No. It's gone. So our desire is to not walk around like a Pharisee, but also not be convinced that you could never become one because you think that you've got a lock on a corner of God's kingdom while everybody else is blind. Let's pray. 
Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.